have to change that for you, always. Glad you guys are, are here today. Um, as Brad uh, put it very well, uh, this is the last Sunday that we will be here in 2021. And I think it is safe to say that uh, you are going to get the most mediocre church experience you have had all year, because uh, that's really what we're shooting for. Uh, just enough to stop you from walking out the door uh, today. Uh, and I mean, the kids are not even doing so. They're just having a happy birthday party for Jesus. I mean, could there be less effort from our children's ministry? Uh, let's, be, let's be honest. So please tell Julie your, your sheer disdain of that as you leave. Uh, no, we'll, we'll kind of remind you at the end. Um, uh, next Sunday, the 26th, is an online-only service. Um, and we're just doing that just to provide some space and some time uh, for people. We know a lot of you are going to have your, your families in town. So you're going to need a minute on the 26th uh, that you don't want to see anyone. Uh, you know, so we, we want to give you that time and give you that space. But uh, we, we'll make sure you that's all communicated. We'll send out texts. We'll send out emails. We'll make sure you have all the links to that. They'll be on our website. Um, so why don't you just uh, get together with your family, maybe stay in your PJs, drink some hot chocolate, uh, whatever else, and just share in a moment of worship as we kind of close down the year. Um, the Christmas eve service is this coming Thursday. Again, Brad will tell you kind of at the end of the service about that. Um, but I hope that it is a Merry Christmas for you and your families, that it is a wonderful time of blessing that you just enjoy. I think we all need some time together, some time to, to catch our breath. I think it's been a long year, so hopefully you will get to do that in, this, in the next few days, which is great. Uh, we're kind of finishing up our, uh, this little series that we, that we started a few weeks back um, called Christ the Savior Was Born, uh, the line out of the song Silent Night, uh, where, where there's this declaration this statement that actually stays with us through the years and has incredible impact. I know this is not a Bible statement, but it's all already there as well. And so we're going to talk about that. Also, just to let you know, Heritage, uh, Heritage School, the one that's right over the year, the new school that, that started this last week. So thanks for bringing that slide up and getting me back on task. Um, at Thanksgiving, we supplied three meals to three families in need at that school. And for Christmas this last week, we went and took two, uh, four meals over for four of their families that will get to enjoy a Christmas meal um, because of that. We also went and gave every teacher at Heritage Hills a $25 gift card, I think to Amazon or something like that, uh, where we just wanted to bless uh, that school as well. And so uh, just appreciate what you've done. A lot of people have said, what can we give to that? Nothing. You guys have given so faithfully that we have an entire line, uh, line item in our budget that we're able to, uh, to bless that school in powerful ways. And so uh, thank you for partnering with us. Just want to share that this is the blessing that we, that we get. Okay, now we're back on track. See, I told you, bad experience today. We're barely just, you know, we're barely keeping it together. Uh, but we, we, we talked about, uh, the first week we talked about Jesus being the Christ. And the word the Christ is really a messianic term. It's a term that means the, the God-man, so to speak. The God who, who becomes flesh and, and, and is a part of our world. And that the Jews had waited a long time for a Messiah, and Jesus comes to fulfill that role. Last week we talked about Jesus being the Savior, and talking about how what he saved people from at first wasn't quite what they thought it, would, it should be. They thought he was there to free them from oppression, to, to take away the slavery of the Roman Empire, but God came to free them from sin. And they didn't quite see that in the beginning. The thing that he was saving them from was this idea of sin and brokenness in the world. And then today, the kind of the scene that you see behind me, a very familiar scene this time of year, Jesus, the born child, the child 
that has now come into the world. If you read any uh, mythology or if you read any history, uh, every nation over a period of time, uh, if you read their stories, they always have what we would call supreme beings or gods. And one of the things that we learn about the people's narrative about their gods is that they, the gods come through, through powerful stories. Some of them are born, others are just kind of seem to be there. If you, if you read the story of Apollo, it tells you about how he, was, how he was born and what was going on there. Or if you read about Horus and his mother Isis and how he was born in Egyptian history as well, there's always these big, powerful narratives that surround these stories, that they are coming into the world to save this nation of people, and it's usually from another nation. It's usually from someone who is oppressing them. This is why even the narrative of Jesus that we read in Matthew and Luke has some of this language, this unfolding language about how this God-man made his way into the world. And that's why even in the earliest stories of Jesus, uh, there is this sort of this statement or this semi-question that many different people seem to ask him. And that is, if you are the Son of God, and the temptation it's the devil who asks him, if you're the son of God, then why don't you make these stones into bread or throw yourself down off of, you know, the high place? When Jesus does miracles and raises people or gives them strength or heals them, people are saying, who is this? Is this a son of God? Or even on the cross at the end of the story of Jesus, the religious leaders are standing around, right? If you're the son of God, why don't you go ahead and come down? We see this statement about this unpacking of is he, is he who he said he was? Is he who the historical account tells us he should be? But have you ever wondered why was Jesus born? Like why not just show up one day? Why not just be there? Because in the Old Testament, or maybe more accurately what we call the Old Covenant, a testament means a testimony, a writing, and so there really isn't as much gap between old and new like we think there is. But in the Old Covenant, we see the God who is ever-present, the God who is just there. Genesis 1 does not tell us where did God come from. It just tells us one day he starts creating. When he's on Mount Sinai giving the law, he's just there. Mount Ararat after Noah, Mount Moriah with Moses and with Abraham, with others. God is just there. He's just present in all of these stories, kind of an umbrella God that's just in all places at all times and is just there. But there's this other narrative that God just being there, they haven't quite got what they need. You remember, if you read 1 Samuel, there comes a point when Israel says, we want a king, give us a king, give us somebody that embodies who you are trying to be. And so we have a lot of words of prophecy. One of those is found in Isaiah chapter 9. This is one that we read a lot. You'll probably hear a lot about this during this time of year. There'll be some familiar language in here. But in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You, this is speaking to God, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders. 
the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. It's this, it's this light and darkness, good versus evil, that is emerging in this word of prophecy. And it says the reason for this is because for us, to, for us, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. He will be a Jewish leader. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. There are these yearning words of these people that are waiting for the the man-god or the god-man or however you want to say that to come into the world. That under new covenant, we see a God who is even present. Not not ever present, but he's there. He chooses to be among his people. And it sort of gives us a weird, uh, kind of a weird story because we we know (laughs) that Jesus was always there and yet he was born. And it comes back to this question, why was he born? Why was this eternal being that has always been there born into the world? Now, one thing that's very funny is, uh, or not funny, but interesting, is the Gospel of John doesn't have any birth narrative of Jesus. That's Matthew and Luke. Mark just starts with the ministry of Jesus, and John goes all the way back to the beginning. However, John loves imagery. So there's a lot of language of light and darkness for John. And John actually uses more language of born or birth than all the other Gospels. So he is... He is uh, um, kind of enamored with this idea, but not in the same way the others are. But listen to what he says in John 1, beginning in verse 9. It says, the true light, he's echoing Isaiah, isn't he? The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, meaning he's the creator, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, meaning the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Children born, there's the language, not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, talking about Jesus. He becomes real. And made his dwelling among us. The language here is actually a camping metaphor. Jesus put his tent in our our campground. That's what the Bible's really saying. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The, The reason why Jesus came, the reason why Jesus was born is actually quite simple if you read John's gospel. The reason why he was born is so that we can be born or reborn. There's a lot of that language in John's gospel about birth and about being reborn. He uses it in chapter 1. We are born of God. We become children of God. We're born into God's family. And if you read the rest of the gospel, this is how he unpacks really the rest of what this is all about. 
what we find then is some of this language with in John chapter 3. I'm going to be in John the rest of today. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, there's a story uh, that intersects Jesus and one of the religious leaders of that time, a man by the name of Nicodemus. It says, now there was a, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. See, there's the light and darkness imagery again. Why do you visit people at night? Because well, obviously you don't want anybody to know that you're doing this. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs that you are doing if God was not with them. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There's the language. How can somebody be born when they're old, Nicodemus says? Am I supposed to climb up in my mother's womb a second time? gross but jesus says nobody can enter the kingdom of god unless they are born of water and of the spirit when you read uh, many of the writers of the new testament you learn very quickly that the word born and reborn and raised and resurrection they all really mean the same thing they're all about uh, something being broken and god allowing something new to happen or something is dead and there's new life poured into that space these words for john are synonymous that's why Jesus uses that language. Have you ever wondered why he uses that language? You know, in John 1, he says, I want, we want people to be born of God. And when Jesus has an interaction with Nicodemus, he says, you need to be reborn. You need to be born again. And John's consistent because he wants people to see this. And the reason why is because birth or rebirth is the path to resurrection. For John, everything is about the resurrection, and so even the birth narrative of Jesus, even the birth narrative of our birth narrative into the family of God leads us to resurrection. Why is that important? Because resurrection is the path to God. And if people don't have resurrection in their lives, they will never find God. This is why the gospel is so powerful. It should never be a manipulation of people. It should always be, listen, when you are born into God's story, you will find life. And when you find life, you will see God. You will come to know him. Now, there's, there's some funny stories in, in the Bible, a lot of them actually. But one that really sort of stays with us is there, you know, we all kind of know the disciples. There's Peter, who's often, you know, in a lot of the stories, and James and John and all the rest of it. But there's one, there's one disciple that not a lot is written about, and the little that is written about them is uh, is really negative. His name is is Thomas. And if you read John's gospel, this is really a story, a sub-narrative, if you will, of Thomas and his birth and rebirth and ultimately his resurrection. I don't mean I don't mean that he's going to be raised from the dead. So just bear with me for a second. But Thomas is the guy. He is the disciple that no one really likes. Okay, because he's always got something negative to say. You ever meet those people? How are you doing today? <sighs> and you're like, oh, I'm sorry I asked. So you learn very nicely. You go, hey, are you good today? Great. <laughs> and just move on, right? That's what we do. If I do that to you, oh, God bless you. We love you. Um, let me stop complaining. Um, but Thomas is the one that he's always, his life is always half empty. There's always an obstacle. There's always something wrong in the story. But when, when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus in John 11, Thomas is the guy that's like, yep, that's it, we're all going to die. It's what he says. He's the guy you never want to get stuck with in an elevator, right? 
If they elevate, oh, that's it, it's over. You know. And yet, he earns the nickname Doubting Thomas. He is remembered in history as somebody who struggles to believe. And if we went around the room, if you talked about, you know, I would be sarcastic Sheldon, um, it would be belligerent Brad, there's many other morbid Melina. I don't know. I mean, lots, lots, of, lots, of good, lots of good things. Just think about your names, what they would be if to, describe, to describe who you are. Um, but the reality is he gets, he gets called this doubter. And yet something very powerful happens in Thomas's life and Thomas's story. Because he spends a lot of time trying to stay away from difficult things in his story. But when he confronts it, something powerful actually happens. So I want to set the scene for you. What happens is Jesus has died, he has uh, gone to the grave, and he has been resurrected, and he has appeared once to all the disciples. The only problem was it happened on a Sunday morning, and Thomas was at a volleyball tournament. He missed church. It says it right here. I'll read it for you. But he, was, he, he had missed church. He, he, he had not been there. And, and I'm not saying that as a dig to anybody. But there is something powerful. God tends to show up when his people gather together. That's where God, if you want to know where God is, you need to be around his people collectively, and that generally is the place that God will show up. The disciples are in a room, and they're spending time together, but in John chapter 20, this is now a week later, after they have seen Jesus, but Thomas have not, and he's promised them, I'll never believe until I see it. In verse 26, it says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Thank goodness he didn't miss two weeks in a row. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Or in Jewish language, Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. I believe those, th- that line, My Lord and my God, is Thomas's conversion moment. That's the moment that he gets it. In Matthew 16, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people think I am? And they, well, we think you're the God man. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. But do you know that Thomas, the least likely apostle, the least likely disciple, is the first one that calls Jesus God. He's the first one to acknowledge the deity of Jesus. Not just the God man, but God. And if you read church history, which I'm sure you do many nights, we learn that Thomas travels further than any other apostle. He goes all the way to India proclaiming the gospel, and he is martyred in India. And I believe it has everything to do with this statement that he made, my Lord, my God. It changed his life. You see, what we learn when we become Christians is that our declaration is what gives us birth and rebirth and ultimately resurrection. It's when we come to that point in our lives where we stop thinking about Jesus just as a good guy. And when we look him in the eye and say, you are my priority, you are God, and I'm going to do everything I can to follow you. That's what happened to Thomas, and it changed his life and the hope is always that that's what happens to each one of us and changes our life and leads us to resurrection, and resurrection leads us back to God.
But there's a little sidebar in the story here, and we'll talk a little bit more at our Christmas Eve-ish service, which will be kind of fun. But you ever wonder, you know, where is Jesus born? He's born in a little place called Bethlehem. Now, if we were rewriting the birth narrative of Jesus in our day and time, we would write it a little differently. If somebody said, hey, you know, the, the man, the God-man or the Messiah or the Christ is coming, where, how would you set up that story? We'd probably say, well, he's probably going to be born in New York or in Washington or, we're, you know, we're good Texas people. Nothing good happens out of state. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep it for us, right? Oh, he'll be born maybe in Austin or in San Antonio or Houston or maybe, maybe Dallas or something like that. And he'll be born in the best hospital or he'll be born in a five-star hotel or he'll be born, you know, in a penthouse suite overlooking, you know, beautiful vistas. That's how we would write the story. And if we superimpose the way we would write it on the way the story is actually written in Bethlehem, as God says, the Christ is coming into the world and I'm going to send him. And we're like, yes, what's going to happen? Where is this all going to happen? We're getting ready. And God says, Jesus will be born in Dalhart. You mean Dallas, right? I mean, nothing good happens in Dalhart, let's be honest. We have one of our potential leaders who is from Delhart and almost disqualified him. The only thing that saved him is that he wasn't from Borger. Like, thank goodness. But that's the response we have. But Delhart? But God, you can have center stage. You can have Jerusalem. No, I want Bethlehem. <laughs> Why? I wouldn't write it that way. You wouldn't write it that way. You want center stage. No, but that's not what God's doing. You see, Christ often uses the forgotten places. Christ was born in one of the forgotten places. Uh, the word Bethlehem just means the place of bread. We've all moved on to chicken fried steak. And God says, the place of bread, the simplest place. That's where I want you to be. And maybe the greater lesson as a part of the narrative of the birth story of Jesus is for us. Wherever you are broken, the Christ, the Savior, is waiting to be born. Because he has one goal, to take that which is dead and broken and give resurrection. You know, whenever we talk about ourselves, we always leave certain parts out of the story, don't we? Stuff that we don't like about ourselves, stuff that we feel is irrelevant, stuff that we are like, I really don't want to talk about that. And when God looks down on our lives and says, this person needs a savior. He doesn't choose the things that we are good at or gifted at to reveal himself. He always chooses that which we hate about ourselves, that which we're broken in. That's that which we are trying to forget. God chooses the, the Dalharts of our lives and says, that's where I can work the most. I don't know why it is we spend so much of our lives trying to cover up our brokenness or pretend like it's not there. Well, I'm over it. And God says, but you're dead in that area. And that's where, that's where I need to be born in your life. You want to be a child of God? That's where I'm going to have to be born. That's where I'm going to do 
my most powerful ministry. And that's where I'm going to teach you to die to yourself. But that's also the place I'm going to bring resurrection. So I think we always have to be cautious with the stuff that we try to keep from God. Because in many ways, what we're doing is we're just keeping resurrection away from ourselves. Because God looks at our lives and says, that's where I need to be born. That's where I need to come into your life. Because that's where you need me to be the Christ. That's where you need me to save you. And maybe when you get comfortable with that, you'll be like Thomas. And when you see resurrection, you'll say, you've got to be God. Because I couldn't have done this without you. I couldn't have got there on my own. My only play was to bury it or cover it up or lock it away in a room. And when I unlocked the door, when I pushed away the dirt, you were born and present in that thing, in that moment, in that situation, and you brought resurrection. It's the lowly, humble places. The stuff that we've forgotten. That's where Jesus wants to do the most. And that's where he will bring the greatest Father, today, thank you that we just had a moment together uh, to just share in in some good stories, to have a few laughs. As we kind of wind down our year, we just pray that you would just softly call to our hearts and to our lives and share with us the great things that you have in store for us in the next year. Father, thank you for not just using the things that we like about ourselves to do your work. Thank you for the grace and the compassion that you offer to us by doing things in places that are long forgotten for us. Father, whatever our brokenness, whatever our feeling of mistakes or inadequacy, God, we do long that you would come into those places, that you would redeem them, you would bring life. We pray for this time of year that you would overwhelm us with your presence. Thank you for coming into our lives. Because of that, may we find resurrection. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And the church together says,